Derek Olson here to reconstruct the prehistoric past with you. In this episode, I feature a recent interview I did with Tony Merkel of the Confessionals podcast, where I talk about Peru's megalithic cave of mystery, new information about the genetic anomalies regarding the elongated skulls of Paracas, Peru, and discoveries and legends relating to giant skeletons unearthed in North America. You are not going to want to miss this show. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to let you know that uh, registration is now live for our second annual Megalithic Marvels of Egypt tour coming this May. And I want to invite you to join me and renowned Egyptologist and tour guide Muhammad Ibrahim for the adventure of a lifetime, a 12-day expedition to see and touch the world's greatest superstructures. For a limited time, you can receive $300 off your registration by using code Egypt 2023, all capital, all together, Egypt 2023. And I hope you will consider joining us. You can click the link below in the show notes or go to megalithicmarvels.com forward slash tours. Lastly, uh, please subscribe to this podcast from wherever you are listening. And while you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to the Confessionals podcast as well. That's an amazing, huge podcast. And I've linked them below in the show notes. Okay, let's get to my interview with Tony now. All right, today we got a guest coming on the show that I feel honored to talk to. Derek Olson, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm great, Tony. Honored to be on the show with you. Oh, man, I'm glad you're here. Listen, I just kind of told you this a little bit, but I'll tell the audience and stuff. Uh, You run the Instagram account, Megalithic Marvels, and uh, I've been following that. I think I've been following that account as long as I've been following uh, Nature is Metal. Have you ever seen that account on Instagram? No. It's it's just this dude that posts video. I think I found it around the same time. That's why I associate it in my head. Uh, It's this guy who posts videos of like nature being nature and everybody's like oh bears are cuddling it's like actually look what this bear just did to this penguin you know (laughs) (laughs) and i think i found both the accounts around the same time and that's why it registers in my head that way um but i know you've been on uh blurry creatures podcast uh several times i I love luke and nate and uh they're they're here in tennessee with me so uh one of these days they'll come in the studio and hang out with me for a while but um when i saw you hopping on their show and stuff uh I think it was probably about a month ago I saw that you followed the confessionals and I was like, oh, snap, like he followed my account. Well, I got to see if he'll come on the show. So uh, I I didn't know much about you. Um, and I, I say this to everybody. And so I don't think it's a surprise to even Nate and Luke, but I don't listen to a whole lot of people's podcasts. So uh, I didn't know exactly much about you outside of the Instagram account. But what the, you sent me a list over some things you're interested in. And I was like, oh, man, he, this guy's like right up my alley. So, uh, you know, you uh, you you really kind of started out this uh, Instagram. I guess if I if I can just start you off here, uh, what spawned the whole Instagram thing? I mean, obviously, it's way more than an Instagram account. Uh, but, you know, what kind of spawned this whole thing for you? Yeah. And, and for starters, I got to say, what's with all the the great podcasters moving to Tennessee, like the Blurry Boys, you? I mean, come on, that's kind of cool. There's your sign. There's your sign. <laughs> <laughs> come and join us. I might have to. You know what? I actually lived there back in the day around 2008. So I was like a pioneer. Before Nashville was cool, I was there. Um, but then it had enough of me. Yeah, I, you know, as a kid, I was one of these kids that was just always fascinated by dinosaurs. I remember getting this book, I think in the 80s, and it showed, uh, talked about dinosaur mysteries, and it showed uh, this photograph, I think, from a Japanese fishing vessel in, in 1977 that was pull, pulled up this decayed body of like a plesiosaur off the coast of New Zealand, I believe. And this fascinated me because without even really knowing, it was like this went against the narrative, like dinosaurs could still be alive. That was kind of one of my first um, things that really got me going. And, and as a kid, I would read the Bible and I was always fascinated by Genesis 6, the topic of giants. And I would ask around, you know, who, who were these and never really could get answers. And then I remember back in the day, it had to be like 2012 ish. I was uh, one day doing an internet image search, probably on my day off of like ancient ruins. And I stumbled upon seeing for the first time a photograph of megalithic ruins in Peru. 
was probably at the Sacsayhuaman site, and immediately my critical thinking skills start kicking in as I could see this was special, this was different, unlike anything I'd ever seen. And my first thought was, how did it take to the year 2012 for me to see this for the first time? This is incredible. And so eventually I went to Peru and I saw these megaliths myself, which we can talk about in a crazy story. So that was kind of my my start. Wow. That's, yeah. So, I mean, I've always been interested in these kind of things. Uh, I just never knew how to really kind of start the research and stuff on it. Uh, but I'll tell you, for me, I, it was uh, Indiana Jones, like watching Indiana Jones yeah. going through these ancient buildings. So I was like, oh man, what if there's treasures in there? Cause I like, I'm a treasure hunter at heart. Like I, I, I love the idea of it. So uh, it, it, just the fact of these, these structures are treasures in themselves. And then it's just like, what kind of secrets do they actually hold, you know? And what were they used for? How were they made? And uh, I know you kind of, you dive into the uh, evidence of ancient giants uh, slash hybrids as well. Uh, now, you did just mention about Genesis 6 as a kid. Uh, at what point as a kid did you realize the depths of Genesis 6? I mean, uh, Genesis 6 is something that, I mean, I, I think a lot of people in, in traditional Christian churches kind of gloss over. Did it always stick out to you or was it something that kind of, there was like a light bulb moment? You know, it always did stick out to me, but I never, I, I never really could grasp as a kid, teenager, um, even in college, what was really going on. It wasn't until uh, I went to I went to Peru and started to do more research about the megalith and saw that there was this connection between megaliths and um, ancient giants of the past. And uh, it kind of all seemed to center on Genesis 6. Um, I read a couple of books. One was on the trail of the Nephilim by Elie Marzulli. That connected a lot of dots for me and, uh, again, helped me to get to Peru where I saw these uh, Paracas skulls, the largest elongated skulls in the world, which we can talk about in a bit. Um, yeah, so that was kind of my my start. Um, so it really wasn't until, man, my late 20s that I really felt like I started to connect the dots on, man, there is a cover-up of history, and there was lost ancient, ancient technology that was used to build these what I call megalithic marvels. Interesting. Uh, so we're going to dive into this, but you, just, you keep saying things. It makes me want to ask you another question. Uh, Cover up of history. Now we we can go into you know how and all that stuff, but on a personal note for you, do you have a why? I know a lot of people have whys as to why they think certain things and stuff. And I mean, a cover up of history. I mean, that's a very blanket conspiratorial statement in itself. So, like, what is your why as to why you think they would have any motivation to cover up history? Now, I mean, I have my own thoughts, but I want to hear yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question. Um, you know, modern day archaeology and anthropology, they've basically nearly sealed the door on our imaginations, as researcher uh, Ross Hamilton would say, by broadly interpreting the North American past as devoid of anything uh, unusual in the way of great cultures characterized by what we would call ancient giants. And so uh, the Smithsonian, what uh, Hamilton calls the great interloper of ancient burial grounds, um, they have basically created a one-way portal through which unaccounted bones have been spirited away. So Darwinism, we know, is the prevailing paradigm that's become the status quo, right, in mainstream archaeology and anthropology. So therefore, any evidence that conflicts with the Darwinian paradigm is basically it's shut down, it's forbidden, and there seems to be a deliberate plan to hide anything that does not fit into the standard theory that Native Americans, you know, crossed the Bering Strait and settled here. And we see this repeated effort uh, to clear the historical record of all references of a pre-Indian Caucasian culture uh, that can be seen as working in harmony with what we call the NAGPRA policies of the government, which is basically based on um, agenda versus objective science. So NAGPRA, it stands for Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. This was a law. Uh, passed by Congress in 1990. So basically what it did was 
anything that did not fit the narrative uh, then and anything that's been discovered since is taken off public display and it's it's all chalked up to Native American. Um, and then they let the Native American tribes bury it according to their traditions. And so that is really the biggest reason why you can't see elongated skulls anywhere in public display in America. It doesn't fit the narrative. Now, Peru's the Wild West. You can still see them there. That's why I went there. Uh, but there's a lot more I could share, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. Wow. So uh, you're saying that elongated skulls is something that isn't specific to Peru, but it's it, but which what it sounds like you're suggesting is that this is something that's way more prevalent globally. Uh, but there is a global effort of uh, erasing a history that doesn't match the narrative that they prefer for us to believe. Yeah, correct. So we've got these uh, massive elongated skulls down in Peru and Bolivia, but mostly in that Paracas region on the coast. Uh, but again, most people have no idea, and we can talk about this uh, later in the show. There have been elongated skulls discovered in North America. And uh, one of the greatest um, discoveries ever made in North America of an ancient skeleton, I don't want to give, give it away because people will know what I'm talking about. This thing originally, when it was discovered in the 90s, had an elongated skull. But when you see the replica today, it's just that of a normal looking skull. Of course. Of course. Oh, man. So... You know, what you're saying, we're not going to go off track here with what I'm about to say. I just want to say this, though. Uh, just judging by recent years' events, uh, it doesn't surprise me that there could be a global effort to rewrite the narrative because <laughs> I feel like they've been doing that live in real time for us. And it's like, wait a second, just yesterday you were saying this, and now you're saying this. And tomorrow you're going to repeat what you said yesterday. And it's just like, geez. Uh, it's called the Ministry of Truth, friends. Check it out. Uh, so, uh, let's well talk about well, let's talk about uh, Peru, man. Uh, so, you th this journey took you to Peru that had a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, brain popping moments for you, where it was a lot of enlightenment, understanding. Uh, it sounds like you come from a uh, a Christian background, and so uh, yep. feel free to at any point during this conversation tie into maybe how these things that you're discovering along the way. Um, maybe challenged you from your your Christian faith. Uh, I know that uh, there's a lot of people that listen to my show that come from the Christian faith, and they also struggle with some things that I talk about on the show because they're like, how does this fit the box? And for me, on my perspective, I'm just like, God, the God I worship is a lot bigger than my comprehension. So uh, I just try to go with the flow and understand that I, I will die one day, probably not knowing everything there is to know about the essence of God. And so uh, that's how I approach life. And uh, it, it keeps me happy. So go ahead and uh, start us off on the journey of Peru and, and what took you there and all that, st that fun stuff. Right. Yeah. So I began to just research on my own. This was before I created the Megalithic Marvels platform. And, and again, just began to realize that all over the world are these Megalithic Marvels that, that speak to us from the prehistoric past, not literally speak to us, but, um, you know, whether it's the Great Pyramids of Giza to the subterranean trapezoid in Sardinia, which most people don't know about, to these mortarless walls in Peru. Um, I believe these are antediluvian pre-flood, uh, most of them, uh, constructions, and they were built with a lost ancient technology. So there's that piece, right? And then, like I said, I begin to realize that aside from the Bible, ancient manuscripts like the Book of Enoch, the Dead Sea Scrolls, historians like Josephus and Homer, they all speak of a race of ancient hybrids that once walked the earth. You can look at the writings of the Spanish chroniclers because uh, they were in Peru and their their traditions are crazy to read about. Uh, countless 20th century U.S. newspapers will get into that and the oral traditions of almost every culture around the globe confirm this phenomenon of a race of giants or hybrids when the gods mingled with men. And so again, that brought me to Peru because this was like the best of both worlds. You've got megaliths and elongated skulls that you can see in museums at the same time. Like I've got to go like now. And so I remember being so excited. I booked this uh, tour with Brian Forrester. Some people might know his name. 
He's kind of famous for his uh, videos on YouTube revealing a lot of uh, megaliths in Peru. So we go down to Peru. And again, it's one thing to read about this, see images. It's another thing to touch these up close. Mind-blowing to say the least. So we see uh, a lot of megalithic sites, you know, the, the famous ones that a lot of tourists see, Machu Picchu, Ojante Tambo, Saxe Woman. Um, but then uh, our tour guide says, I want to show you something off the beaten path. And um, so this whole experience that I'm about to share really opened my mind and my eyes to the intersection between ancient megalithic technology and the spirit realm. So we're with a group of about 20 other people and we're in an area what's known as the sacred valley this is located about an hour and a half two hours northwest of cusco so the sacred valley is where machu picchu is and in, in ojante tambo which we saw but again our tour guide wanted to take us off the beaten path and show us something a site back then that hardly anybody knew about called uh, nuapa huaca and I'll tell you what that means in a minute. I call this place Peru's megalithic cave of mystery. And so we begin hiking along this old railroad track uh, through this remote mountainous ravine in the Andes. And uh, we eventually begin to ascend up this small trail up the face of this mountainside. And um, I begin to notice Inca ruins all over of small rough stone and, and mortar scattered around this hillside. Uh, that was what Inca construction consists of. Again, it's small rough stone and it's mixed with mortar. It's cool, but it's not megalithic. And so I'm, 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 I remember thinking, man, why are the Inca building here? This seems like such an obscure spot right on the, the face of this kind of steep mountain. What did they discover up here, right? And so as we climb higher and higher, you could begin to see this large cave up in uh, the distance. And it was natural, but you could see it had a trapezoidal type triangular shape. And along with our tour group, uh, our guide had also brought this local man who was a, a descendant of the Inca bloodlines. And he was like this Incan shaman. Nice guy, but uh, shaman need I say more. So... Before we enter the cave, the shaman stops us and tells us that we need to basically be brushed and sprayed with his, um, he had this incense and he wanted us to be basically cleansed so that we didn't offend the spirits inside, the ancient spirits. So right there I'm thinking, okay. Uh, this is strange for a few reasons. One is this hasn't happened at any of the other ancient sites we visited. Why this cave? I soon found out. So we climb up into this cave and you realize immediately this thing is huge. It's much larger than we thought. It's the shape of a triangle uh, with the ceiling of the cave kind of going up to a point. You look to the left and you see these uh, Incan ruins of an Incan wall, uh, small rough stone and mortar. But as you pan to the right, you see this thing that is unfathomable. And the entire side of this andesite cave wall has been cut out in like five different layers. It's what I would say 3D is one of the best words or phrases I can use to describe this. And inside this cut out wall that's real wide is this multi-layered door that looks like it goes straight into the mountain. Now, this door is a faux door or a false door, so it doesn't actually go, it stops. Um, but this was mesmerizing. And then as you pan back to the entrance of the cave and you're overlooking the valley below, right in the center is uh, this basically, I would say this, it, what looks like an altar or a console that's been crafted out of this andesite stone outcropping. Andesite is extremely uh, strong like granite. And this thing is futuristic in nature. It's got protruding knobs, curved precision angles, and this precision like drill hole that goes to the center of it. 
And so my mind is blown. Again, we're in a cave way up in the Andes Mountains. Nobody could have packed electric tools up here to build this, right? A cord would not reach long enough and power or battery, battery powered tools wouldn't have the strength to cut this. Okay. So this is crazy. The shaman then explains how, according to the Inca oral traditions, this console piece was somehow aligned with the sun and the sunlight at certain times would pierce through this hole at specific times. And then he shares how uh, Napahuaca basically means uh, ancient temple in the Incan language. And he says, this is the place for getting the key. And he says, how do you get the key? And then he, he proceeds to kneel down in the center of this console and he places his, his arms and hands on these protruding knobs. And again, he's facing this hole. He presses his head, forehead into the hole and he explains how when you're in this position, basically the knowledge when the sun hits through that hole would pass through the hole and into your third eye. And this is how you get the key. And he says, once you get the key, then you can go approach. And this is his quote, the interdimensional doorway and enter through the portal and travel to different locations. Unbelievable. Is this crazy? I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's what they did. Like, so this is what they, they believed back then. Yeah. So this was, this is the, the, Inca legends, again, who existed in the 13th century, the 14, 1500s. And this guy is, is an Incan shaman, so he, he, he does know the oral traditions. But if that's not crazy enough, so after we'd thoroughly explored this cave, uh, the shaman basically asks us all to sit around uh, this ledge inside the cave. He proceeds to pull out a drum, and he wants us to close our eyes and and basically meditate while he honors or welcomes the ancient spirits with his song and dance. And now I'm not having any part of this uh, whatsoever. So while many uh, are engaged in this, this meditation, whatever you want to call it, I'm basically canceling out any unwelcome spirits over me with like prayer, right? And everything was quiet and seemed somewhat peaceful for a few minutes. Well, he ba uh, beat it on his drum and sang until all of a sudden, this guy in our group lets out a blood-curdling scream. And it basically sent a shockwave through the group. And this guy, as you look over at him, he's shaking violently like he's throwing his arms, filling his arms in the air while screaming. And uh, this guy was clearly terrorized and, and gripped with fear, right? And so many of us rush over to try to help him. And uh, as he begins to settle down eventually, he goes on to tell us that uh, while he was meditating and closing his eyes while the music played, he saw this, what he described as like a jaguar spirit come out of that portal doorway. And I don't, I can't remember if he said either approach him or enter him, but it literally scared him to death. And uh, that, to me, was one of the craziest experiences because it, it showed a real-life, real-time connection between megalithic technologies and the spirit world that still exists today. Wow. Holy cow, man. So under your, uh, under your thoughts on, on how that whole experience went and stuff, do you think that there in a very in a very generic christian sense that that jaguar was some kind of entity pursuing possession of that man's body yeah i do and the backstory on the guy is that you know we had been halfway through the tour by the time we came to this cave and this guy was he was very brilliant i i guess he had like a genius level iq uh he didn't say that braggadociously but he did he did mention it and he was a very proud atheist is another thing to point out. Very proud atheist, very intelligent as far as the mind goes. And so I find it interesting that this happened to him, right? And um, a fellow researcher, um, Mark Carpenter, 
based on his research, when he heard me tell this story, he believes this is what is called a uh, a jaguar is is what he would call a nagual a nagual spirit, which could be a ghost of a nephilim descendant. So crazy to think about. Uh, don't have all the answers, but it was a crazy experience nonetheless, and one that really catapulted me to again, launch megalithic marvels to have a platform to talk about this stuff and show this stuff. And so what year was that again that you were down there? This would have been 2017. Okay, gotcha. Uh, so, all right, let's talk about this uh, cave that you, uh, you, you were in. Uh, for one, the way you describe it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's almost as if you were standing inside of a pyramid, right? It was a triangle that kind of came to a point above you. Yeah, it was a natural cave. I mean, for the most part, but it was uh, triangular in shape. Yes, when you got inside, it was, I mean, as perfect as you could consider in a, in a giant cave, a triangle where the ceiling of the cave went up to a sharp point. Okay. So, so uh, with with that and what you described seeing to, I think you said when you panned to the right, uh, and, you know, let, let's... Uh, I guess let's try to approach this uh, from maybe some different a angles here. So one, uh, I can say from my own perspective, uh, I once hiked about two miles into the Allegheny National Forest looking for a cave that supposedly had a fossilized Bigfoot print in it. I found the cave. I go into the cave. I, I find the print only to find out that it is a fake and that somebody literally either took a bag of cement, mixed it there, and made this print, or lugged this heavy piece of cement up into the woods like I had just hiked uphill two miles. It was it was really a rough hike. And so I know that if you really want to, you can pull some some really drastic things off uh, with, you know, things that seem very impractical. Like, I mean, the idea of lugging that weight around, it was heavy. Uh, it seems like very impractical. But, I mean, what are the, the real odds here that that there was, um, I guess, are you concluding that there, there was some kind of ancient technology that was lugged up there to shoot lasers and, and cut this stuff? Or do you think it was more condensed? Or, or how do you think that they could have created what you saw? Right. So this gets into, again, evidence for lost ancient technology. Now your average tour guide would tell you, well, this is just Inca creations inside this cave. I would say absolutely not. Again, what I described on the left side of the cave was an Inca wall, where from the you know 1400s. Again, Inca they were an amazing culture. They were brilliant in their day, but their construction consisted of you know smaller rough stones mixed with mortar. Now they could do this on a huge scale and create amazing terracing and, and structures, but it is a completely different world from the megalithic technology you see on the right side of the cave, right? I believe the 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 faux door uh, or whatever you want to call it, the portal and that console slash altar thing were built by the megalithic builders, just as the pyramids were built by the megalithic builders. And then the dynastic Egyptians of 3000 BC came along later and repurposed them as their own. Same thing happened in this cave on the other side of the world. The Inca came along in the 1400s, were, were mesmerized by this, this uh, technology in this sacred place. That's why they built their wall in there and the walls down below and were trying to repurpose this. And I believe they were still harnessing the energies and the power of this site. So... When you say megalithic builders, are are you meaning giants? Is that what you're meaning? Or is it like a combination of giants and other people? So there's definitely a connection um, when we talk about um, giants and megaliths. Let me share this. Uh, you know, I believe that the elite ruling class of the Golden Age, we're talking pre-flood, possessed a knowledge that allowed them to easily engineer the megalithic marvels I talk about that we still see lying in ruins today, whether it's Egypt or Peru. Yeah, but when consider uh, thinking of these technologies 
we don't want to just think of them like technology we use today, which is a lot uh, mostly designed for convenience, it seems like. If we could travel back in time to see how they made this stuff, the technology of the Golden Age, it would probably be so alien to our 21st century minds that we would barely be able to recognize it. Um, the ancients believed, if you look at the oral traditions and the legends, that the megaliths were constructed by the sons of the gods. A legend preserved to this day uh, by the word that archaeologists still use to describe this architecture as cyclopean. You might have heard that word. Cyclopean obviously comes from the word cyclops. So in Greek mythology, the giant one-eyed sons of the gods were the master masons. Uh, they were the metallurgists uh, that that built all this stuff, um, especially the stuff we see in Greece and like Italy. There's massive megaliths that have this cyclopean-style architecture. And so the ancients uh, attributed it to the cyclops. And um, so whether Cyclops was a literal, gigantic, one-eyed uh, hybrid or more of a um, representation of the megalithic knowledge that the ancients had, um, I don't know, but it could be both. So Cyclopean architecture is basically, it, it consists of these massive polygonal blocks interlocked without mortar, like we see again in Egypt, Peru. Uh, Europe, they were designed to withstand cataclysm. That's why we can still enjoy them today, uh, because they're perfectly pitched to flex and sway during earthquakes. And um, they're found on all four hemispheres of the globe. Uh, Timothy Alberino, fellow researcher, talks about in his new book, Birthright, that the easiest way to explain the worldwide megalithic phenomenon is to assume that an advanced global civilization once existed on Earth until it was swiftly destroyed in a global cataclysmic event. And that these megaliths we see today alone bear witness to the knowledge that was lost in this great uh, cataclysm. So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, some initial thoughts there. Yeah, so uh, the, the technology, would you say, because it sounds like, like it was almost like the technology itself was designed for, uh, for, for, for a different purpose than what we design technology for today. Uh, it, if you had the, like two pieces of technology next to each other, would you say that theirs was more advanced at one time than what we have today? Because I, I hear these stories of people saying, oh, we can't rebuild the pyramids. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I, to, to me, I'm like, what do you mean we can't rebuild the pyramids? It, it seems like we should be able to do anything we want these days. So, uh, I mean, what what are your thoughts as far as the technology goes back then? Is it something that you feel like was probably, at least in certain categories, far more advanced than what we have today? Or in maybe even understanding? I do believe what the ancients had in the, what we could say, golden age was more advanced than what we have today. Um, obviously, we have some great advancements today that they didn't have in the 19th century, right? The 20th century. So the 21st century compared to those other centuries is, does have a crazy, amazing technology. Um, but again, all of this is, uh, you have to compare it to a backdrop that mainstream historians have taught us to believe that ancient times equal primitive times. So in Egypt, for example, or again in Peru, we're led to believe that, um, you know, the pyramids were built as tombs uh, around 2500 BC. Um, and before that, there just wasn't a whole lot going on. Well, when you kind of start to look at the archaeological record, the dynastic Egyptians, they ruled, you know, they, they, they emerged around 3000 BC. And again, they're the ones that were told built the pyramids. Well, the dynastic Egyptians, according to their own archaeological record, had uh, copper and iron tools, okay? Copper and iron rank three to four on the Mohs scale of hardness. Mo the Mohs scale is, was created by this guy named uh, something Mohs, and it basically goes on a scale of one to ten, hardest stone, you know, to softest, which is one. So the very tools that the dynastic Egyptians had were three and four on the Mohs scale hardness, the rose granite that was used to make the pyramids, to make a lot of the megalithic structures in Peru from Aswan, 
ranks as an eight or nine on the Mohs scale of hardness. Okay. You can't, number one, cut harder material with a softer tool. Number one. Number two, you can't do it with precision, almost laser-like precision, right? So that is one of the smoking guns of lost ancient tech. When you walk around the Great Pyramid of Giza, guess what you see? You see these are ancient. What looks like precision saw or laser cuts all over in stones laying on the ground and precision drill holes. The dynastic Egyptians, how would they have done that with copper and iron chisels and hammers that are way softer than granite, right? So you start to think about that stuff. And then again, same with the Inca. We've been talking about Peru a lot. The Inca had the same copper chisels and hammers, way softer than the granite and the andesite of that region. How would they precision craft this stuff with uh, their tools? And then when you start to read their oral traditions, they basically state that when they arrived, the megaliths were already here. So oral tradition plays a, a part in this too. So, so much we could talk about. I wanted to definitely get to the Paracas skulls because I've kind of been doing some recent research on that. What do you think? Absolutely. That's actually where I was going to be going next. So go for it. Because I, I saw you mentioned about you were, you were looking into the DNA and stuff like that. So I'm, ex I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Yeah, again, this is what took me to Peru is not only do you have megaliths, but you have these elongated skulls. And again, I was just in Egypt in, in February. That was the trip of a lifetime, but there's not the elongated skulls that you can see like in Peru that you can see there. So that's why Peru is such a special place in my heart. So in the 1920s, a little backstory for people who might not know much about the Paracas skulls. In the 1920s, there was this archaeologist named Julio Tello, and he first discovered these tombs in the Paracas area, which is the west side of uh, Peru on the coast in Paracas. And he found uh, these tombs filled with skeletons that had these huge, large elongated skulls, the largest on earth. And since then, many more have been uh, discovered in this region. They're all believed to date between like 2,000 and 3,000 years old. Now, skeptics always immediately cry that all these are just the result of cradle headboarding or cra cra cranial deformation, right? I would say wrong. Now, here's what's going on. Some of these skulls are the result of cranial deformation, but many of them are not. Here's what's going on. There's two different types of skulls found amongst the Paracas. There are some cradle headboarded skulls uh, that are elongated simply due to cranial uh, deformation or head binding. And they were trying to emulate the other type of skull, which we call the natural elongated skulls of Paracas. Okay. On the cradle headboarded skulls, other than the cranial uh, elongation, everything would look similar to our skulls. They've got the same size um, eye sockets, jaw size, suture lines, and that kind of stuff. But on the natural elongated skulls, this is where there's all these crazy anatomical genetic differences. And I believe that these, uh, these ones were the nobles and the royalty of the Paracas culture. So on these naturally elongated skulls, They've got much larger jaw bones than ours, if you compared. And they've got eye sockets, this is crazy, that are up to 50% larger than normal human skulls uh, on several of them. 50% larger. I mean, this thing literally does look like an alien if, if you're just talking about yeah. aliens, right? Um, what's more is these are missing the sagittal sutures. Now, the sagittal suture is like the fibrous connective tissue that joints between the two parietal plates that run down like the center back of our skulls. These don't have the sagittal sutures. Okay, that's genetic. And then many of the elongated skulls' cranial volume, this is the craziest thing, is up to 25% larger than our skulls. A few of the skulls, such as the Chango skull, which is uh, located in the Ica Museum, it's got, I would say, almost 50% 50, 50 more cranial mass wow. than ours. And so here's the key to the skeptics. Cranial deformation or head binding, it can certainly change the shape of a skull, 
it cannot add more cranial volume to a skull, right? It's only shaping what it's been given. It can't make more cranial volume. Now, if that's not crazy enough, this was one of the things that I recently uh, uh, found in my research that blew my mind. So the foramen, it's called the foramen magnum. This is the hole in the bottom of our skulls where the neck attaches, okay? And if you look at the bottom of our skull, human skull, it's located at the balance point in the center bottom of our skull. So right in the center bottom is this hole where the neck attaches. It's called the foramen magnum. But on the natural elongated skulls of Paracas, it's located way in the back bottom of the skull. So not in the center, way in the back. This is 100% genetic because you you cannot change the location of the foramen magnum. It would kill the child that you're cradle headboarding, right? It would basically suffocate them, crush their neck. Uh, if that's not crazy enough, on the left and right sides of the back of these naturally elongated Paracas skulls are these small bones and this is going to bring us back to the Inca, these small bones called Inca bones. And we don't have these in our skulls if you looked at an x-ray. And these are known as Inca bones because they are found in the skulls of what the Inca considered to be their the royalty of the 13th century. And so this, I believe, links the Paracas, who died out 2,000 years ago, with the rise of the Inca culture and the royal Inca, who were said to have possessed dark red hair, the, the Paracas, also had it, right? So pretty crazy. There's so much more I can share about these Paracas skulls, but I know I've said a lot. So with the with these skulls, the, the, the let's call the, the original skulls, the real ones, not the, the, the fakers, uh, are we <laughs> like are we suggesting then that these were more than just human beings like uh, and, and if that's the case i mean are we going the route of like more so like giant route or are we going more so like alien route because i know this isn't you know ancient aliens but i know they talk about this kind of stuff on that show and i i just didn't know what your thoughts were on on what what these things were then that was was like a ruling class almost great question yeah um so I would say this, a couple other things to note before I answer that. So in the last five years, there have been new discoveries of these elongated skulls uh, unearthed in Peru and Bolivia, but of newborn infants. And I can send you some uh, photos, Tony, if you want to put these on your Instagram or whatever. But these things were born right out of the womb with massive elongated skulls. Again, meeting... This wasn't due to head binding. They were born like this. This is genetic. Now, uh, Brian Forster, who I was in Peru with, and Elia Marzulli, another researcher, I've got I've been able to hang out with some. They've done extensive research, spent a lot of time and money on DNA analysis, and they had to wait five plus years. But they last year they finally got a lot of the results back um, on these skulls. They sent it to two different labs. One of them was UCLA. They sent uh, DNA from 18 of these skulls, and they got DNA on 12 of them back. In a nutshell, there was um, Native American ancestry found in four of the skulls, but no Native American ancestry found in the other eight. These other eight skulls were found to predominantly, check this out, trace their ancestry to the Caspian and Black Sea near the Caucasus Mountains of Crimea. And Brian Forster theorizes that, you know, some 3,000 years ago, the ancestors of the Paracas fled the, uh, fled the Black Sea area, right? Headed south through like Iraq and Iran to the Persian Gulf, sailed east to the coast of Peru. And here's the crazy thing. Paracas, Peru is the number one location where the largest elongated skulls on earth have been found. Guess where, guess which location comes in second for the largest collection of elongated schools on earth. Where? The Black Sea region of Crimea. <laughs> so 
all of these and all of these date between two and three thousand years ago. So there's this definite connection. The Prakas appear to answer your question, have originally migrated from the Black Sea region of Crimea and Marzuli, and a lot of people believe these are, are descendants of the Nephilim. There's some type of hybrid that lived a lot longer than a lot of these other, you could call them Nephilim tribes or whatever you want. Another theory that some share that uh, Timothy Alberino shared with me, I find this very intriguing, is that this? what if this was an ancient Ice Age humanoid race that survived literally up to 2,000 years ago and the Paracas were the last of this type of humanoid? Uh, so again, my um, coming from a biblical worldview... I believe um, these could be some type of um, Nephilim descendants, some kind of tribe that lived a lot longer than the rest, and we, we're seeing skulls of them from 2,000 years ago. Unbelievable. So these, let's just let's just go with the thought of these being uh, a a type of Nephilim, or or if that's the case. Uh, and they they land on the shores of Peru and they set up civilization. Uh, and then uh, we find these different structures and, and ancient technology, signs of ancient technology. What is your opinion? I have my opinions and maybe my opinion will come out in this question. But uh, do you think that the, the Nephilim had uh, access to this technology through sorcery because it's of my opinion that the fallen angels taught man how to do things that we were never supposed to know how to do and if they taught us how to do it then who why would they not teach their their offspring yeah great question i definitely think uh, as <coughs> excuse me as the book of enoch points out um they traded um if you believe in the Nephilim, you know, theory, if we want to call that, they traded forbidden knowledge to mankind, right, in order to breed with man's earth women. And so that's where this technology likely would have come from. I think the, when we talk about the golden age, it was, it was, it wasn't like the entire civilization had this advanced tech, it was the elite of the golden age, and that's why we only see megaliths, not everywhere, but in just certain specific spots, because this was the elite ruling class of the pre-flood golden age world. Uh, we could talk a lot about Atlantis and all that, but there was advanced technology, and I believe there was these hybrid demigod rulers, um, again, that were a lot more than just big, tall, dumb giants. We think of Goliath in the Bible. When you think of Goliath, again, <laughs> whether it's from Sunday school or whatever, it might be easy to think of him as just a big, eight-foot-tall, slow guy that suffered from gigantism. No, these were hybrids that were incredibly fast, incredibly swift, um, and were cannibalistic in nature for the most part. So this was partly why in the Old Testament, God forbid blood sacrifice and child sacrifice, because they weren't just uh, sacrificing their children to, say, a stone God. They were literally bringing them to these cannibalistic hybrid rulers to devour, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so... So... uh on on that note, you're bringing up the the Goliath connection and 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 the biblical connection. Uh, I and I'm asking you this, and this is put, kind of putting you on the spot. And if you don't know, you don't know. But I, I I've I know I read this. Unless unless we are now in a parallel universe that it's been taken out of the Bible. Uh, I know I've read this. I just I cannot find it. Uh, and maybe it's God saying you need to read the whole Bible again, Tony. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I. There is somewhere in the Bible, I remember reading where, and I believe it was David, was on the battlefield, and one of Goliath's relatives came onto the battlefield and it said, yielding a new type of weapon, 
and that and it, and it really stuck out to me. I was like, a new type of weapon. Like back then, we got spears, swords, maybe something that launches boulders or something. But like, what are we talking about? New type of weapon? Because David killed a lot of people. His guys around him were super soldiers. They've seen a lot. So what is this like new type of weapon that that could be possibly? catching anybody off guard and I, in my head it's like this is the marvel comic book side of you but in my, <laughs> in my head i'm thinking to myself is this like a sword that's glowing purple and it's like look what i got you know and it's like i don't know how to stop this you know uh but I, have you ever heard of that or read that anywhere because i it, it was so brief i just remember it's sticking out in my head i'm like whoa and i stopped on it and and, and i actually wrote a a, a, a little a, like a blog post about it years ago and i can't find that anywhere either it's crazy <laughs> They've scrubbed it. Yeah. The, the Smithsonian scrubbed it from the internet. No, um, you know what's crazy? I have not heard that, uh, but now I'm going to be researching that as soon as we're done here. Uh, new type of weapon. No, I haven't heard that, um, but I have, um, I've got a couple Bible scriptures here on the screen that I could share just to give some context uh, about what I'm saying. Um, one of my favorite, again, most people know Genesis 6, 4. So I like reading um, some other scriptures people might not have heard. First Chronicles 26. And I think this is a New King James. It says, quote, yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature with 24 fingers and toes, six on each hand and six on each foot. And he was also born to the giant. The Hebrew, Hebrew word there is Rapha which means giants or Raphaim. So right there, we've got a scripture talking about this uh, warrior of great stature with all these anatomical genetic anomalies. Uh, pretty crazy. Um, then we've got a quote from, I like to go again to extra biblical sources. Um, there is a, historian named Josephus. He uh, lived 37 BC to 100 AD. He was a first century Roman Jewish scholar, wrote some books that are really viable to explaining the Jewish history. And in several places in his book, The Antiquities of the Jews, he talks about the giants uh, of the day that were still on display that you could see. And here's one of his quotes Quote, for which reason they remove, um, okay, here it is. For which reason they removed their camp to Hebron, and when they had taken it, they slew all the inhabitants. There were till then left the race of giants, who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day, unlike to any credible relations of other men, end quote. Mm. So crazy how you've got these, uh, again, quotes from other historians, non-biblical text that's pretty ancient that talks about the same stuff. Yeah, and and that's, you know, when it comes to this kind of stuff, I traditionally, I do enjoy going back to ancient historians that are not in the Bible and see what they say about those times. And I, I I've done that before, and this is, off topic, but I, I've done that before with uh, with Jesus's existence. It's really interesting when you go back to ancient historians and read about what they have to say about Jesus. Like people who nowadays say, "Oh, Jesus wasn't even real." No, he was really a real dude. It's, it, do you believe he is who he says he was? That's one thing, but you can't say he didn't exist because history says he existed, uh, right. and that's outside the Bible. But like when when the historians are saying that, like they they they. These are historians that aren't believing that he's the son of God, yet they'll say that he performs sorcery and things like that. And so what well, as a Christians, we would say are miracles. So I could see how somebody on the outside would be like, that's sorcery. But the fact is he was doing what the Bible says he was doing, which is gives him a lot of street cred. So <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's it's really interesting. Uh, listen, before we have to wind things down with you, um, I wanted to just maybe, and maybe we can have you on again sometime here. Uh, but you have in the notes here about Mount, Mount Shasta giants. Uh, I've I've heard of such things, uh, and 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 by by you saying that, are you suggesting that there were giants here in North America? Go. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this will be a great way to end. Okay, let me set this up. So the European colonists who discovered the New World, they found obviously a thriving culture previously, previously settled by the Native Americans. But as the, you know, the white man pushed westward, he began to discover the remains of another culture that seemed to predate the Native Americans by thousands of years. And this was most, uh, mostly due to these giant earthen mounds um, constructed with some kind of ancient knowledge and mathematics that had withstood the ages. And um, as these settlers would begin to dig through them, they would find giant skeletons between seven and 10 feet in length. And some of them would slip over a, a normal man's skull. Some of them would be wearing copper ornaments. Some would have double rows of teeth. Um, I mean, you can, anybody can go to um, the library of Congress online and search for this on megalithicmarvels.com. I've featured a lot, a lot of these articles I've found, but here's just a couple of headlines from the New York Times, okay? This is before political correctness, right? 1871 New York Times report, eight-foot skeletons with filed teeth found in Virginia Cave. 1885 New York Times report, eight-foot skeletons found in underground vault. 1916 New York Times report, seven-foot horned skeletons found in Pennsylvania mound. Okay, so you've got... um all these old newspapers talking about these giant, uh, again, seven to 10 foot tall discoveries of skeletons. Um, you've got Abraham Lincoln. Have you ever heard his quote about the giants or Buffalo Bill Cody? No, I haven't. Okay. So these are two famous Americans. Um, Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president, he was at Niagara Falls visiting and he, uh, he was, he's reflecting on what he's seeing there. And he wrote in his journal, Uh, When Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came from the hand of his maker, then as now, Niagara was roaring here. The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now, end quote. Holy crap! Are you serious? Right. So this is this is Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president. Back then, this was just known. Again, before the cover-up of history, people knew the mound builders predated the Native Americans. And, and the Native Americans knew that as well. Again, so many stuff I could share, but I better get to the Mount Shasta legend to end this because I know we're running out of time. Oh, and if I come back, we've got to talk about the Lovelock Giants. That, to me, is one of... That's probably my favorite part of North American giant lore is the Lovelock Cave Giants because I I believe the evidence is so irrefutable from the cave to the what the archaeologists found to the newspapers to the miners to photographs that you can see today from people that have seen these skulls in a back room of a museum. It's un you you can't I, I really believe you can't debate it. Okay, so Mount Shasta, yeah, there's there's legends of giants all over the place. And uh, Mount Shasta is known, obviously, for many mysteries, right? Subterranean tunnels, people disappearing. Just on the news uh, this week, there was uh, a couple and another person that have disappeared uh, kind of near Mount Shasta in this NorCal area. It's a very strange place. Uh, thousands make pilgrimages there. It's like a New Age Mecca. And this is mostly due to the legend of Lemuria that says somewhere deep beneath a mountain is this, these, this, these complex tunnels and a possible hidden city, um, home to what some people call ancient Lemurians. But when you read about them, they were considered to be giants, okay, like 10 feet tall. Okay, so there's this fairly well-known legend about a guy named J.C. Brown. Uh, in my research, he also went by a name of J.B. Bodie. Now, this guy lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and uh, he was a geologist hired by uh, this Lord Cowdrey Mining Company of England to prospect for gold around California in the Mount Shasta uh, region. One day, he was out surveying, and he comes across this cliff near Mount Shasta, and he eventually makes his way down 
this to the bottom, he notices what looks like a tunnel entrance at the base of this cliff, but it's blocked by like all this fallen rock and debris. He begins digging away and excavating it for a while and he eventually clears out uh, his way through. And sure enough, there is this massive tunnel, uh, which he said was like 10 feet tall by seven feet wide. And this thing was miles deep. And so JC Brown ventures deep inside this uh, tunnel system and some uh, some reports say this thing was 11 miles long. Now, after going deeper into the tunnel, he begins to find an assortment of uh, what I would call ancient oddities, including the remnants of like um, ancient mining uh, tools. And he comes across treasure. He comes across um, these uh, chambers. And as he begins to go inside these chambers, he sees inscriptions and symbols that almost look like they might be from Egypt or something like that. As he goes deeper into these chambers, here's, here's the kicker. He, he states that he saw prehistoric mummies and skeletons that, were, that measured about 10 feet in length. This was in 1904. So 30 years later, this guy um, is living in Stockton and he's been telling his story and he's trying to get together a search party or an expedition to go back to find this area and catalog this stuff. Um, but the legend of J.C. Brown goes the night before they were to leave, uh, he vanishes and um, he basically disappears. And there, but there was even a newspaper headline from the Stockton Record, June 9th, 1934. They ran a top of the page headline that said, quote, 80 Stocktonians left behind in search for lost continent, end quote. So really intriguing uh, kind of legend story there that uh, might bear weight to many of the other oral traditions that Giants skeletons have been discovered even in and around Mount Shasta. That's unbelievable. Uh, I think I think we. I well, I, if listen, I don't know how your experience has been, but I really enjoyed having you here. So if you if you're willing, I would love to have you back on the show sometime to talk about Lovelock Caves and go into more of this stuff. Before I let you go, though, I got to ask you. This is pure opinion based, so feel free to say whatever you want to say. Uh, do you think giants could still be alive today? Like Nephilim giants, not, hey, these people tend to get taller type people. Like, do you think that there are remnant of the Nephilim still breathing today? I think that could be a possibility in very, very remote places. Uh, many people might have heard of uh, this, what they call the Kandahar giant story of, I think it was the two, early 2000s. Uh, during uh, one of the Middle East wars there, U.S. troops were in, I believe it was, it was wherever Kandahar is. I don't know if that's Afghanistan or Iraq. It, yeah, But they're in this remote mountainous uh, region. And, and, sh and oddly enough, they were called into this cave where the, basically the story goes that this, this was the helicopter pilot that flew this body back. He was telling the story that these guys, fired upon this giant uh, red-haired humanoid, killed it, and the body was flown in uh, a C-130 back to a U.S. base. So that story so intrigues me. But what, what makes me a believer even more is on my research on Easter Island, we could talk about that too, so many megalithic mysteries there. But one crazy thing I found in the ship logs of Jacob Rogovine, who was the first Dutch explorer to ever hit Easter Island, in his ship logs, he talks about seeing 12-foot-tall giants uh, in and around some islands by uh, not far from Easter Island, and um, that it blew their minds. This was in the 1700s. <laughs> So again, this is before political correctness. This is a really heralded explorer writing that they saw 12-foot-tall natives that were super swift and strong uh, roaming the shore. Well, there you have it. 
giants that still exist today in my book. I, <laughs> I listen. I I personally think that along the lines of you and stuff, I think that they could definitely exist today. I don't think that you're gonna find them walking around New York City, but uh, well, you never know. But uh, I, I just I think that Afghanistan definitely poses that kind of environment. Uh, I was actually in communication with a guy who served in our armed forces, and when he was in Afghanistan, he would make a habit of asking locals about the idea of giants. And some of them, he said, just kind of looked at him like cross-eyed, like, what, what what are you talking about? And then others were like, we're not talking about that right now. Uh, and he did hear that there's a, a nature preserve in Afghanistan that borders uh, China. And so I looked it up, and it's only about a 30-mile stretch of land that borders China to, to Afghanistan. And in that nature preserve, they say that there are giants in there. I'm just like, sounds good to me. I believe it. <laughs> so, <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Uh, well, you can go there if you want. I, I will not be going there. It's. Uh, it, I hear it's kind of dangerous these days. So uh, I will be staying on the homeland. But Derek, man, I appreciate you being on the show. Before we get out of here, could you just let people know where they could find you and connect with you if they'd like to? Yeah, you can find uh, find me on megalithicmarvels.com. A lot of articles there. Uh, on Instagram, like Tony said, Megalithic Marvels, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. We got a Facebook group and a Facebook page. And so, uh, yeah, you can usually DM me. And um, a lot of people send me photographs or, or videos they've had a, they've had at Megalith. So I'm around and uh, would love to connect. Awesome, man. And before we get out of here, one more thing. Uh, I just remembered, I actually did connect with you a while ago, last year, I think it was. And I asked I asked you about Pens- my, my trip in Pennsylvania because I had come across this like giant wall out in the right. woods. Yes, and I never got you that footage. I never even released that yet. I, I'm, I'm still waiting still- on that footage. <laughs> It's it's sitting on a hard drive. I'm supposed to turn it into some kind of like vlog for my YouTube channel for the last two years. I haven't touched it, but uh, I, I will. I have to get it to you. Uh, I don't know what it is, uh, but it, it, it stretched uh, over a half a mile. At times, it was probably about two, 200 feet high, and it looked like giant rocks placed on top of each other. And at one point, it almost looked like a, you could almost see how it could be looked, viewed as like a serpent head almost. Uh, it, it, it seemed... It seemed engineered to me, but I guess there there other people say suggest that it happened 300 bajillion years ago when the oceans pushed and the, the floor of the ocean pushed up vertically and all that stuff. So I don't know, but I will send it to you uh, at some point. I got to dig it out, but I, I got to send it to you. Yeah, please do. I would love to see that. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to check out my last episode with Egyptologist and tour guide Muhammad Ibrahim, where we discuss what he calls Egypt's Area 51, this strange ancient structure that the military took over in the 1960s and where something very strange was unearthed. You can click the link uh, below in the show notes, and I'll see you over there. Until next time, keep exploring.